and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bass. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I'm still uh, trying to slot back into my normal life. Like, I left town, like, almost right after we did last week's episode. That's right, yes. And I feel like I came back to a... Uh, I mean, things were all balled up at the head office. I came back <laughs> to a real... Uh, a real mess at work, and I feel like I'm just now getting caught. I, I honestly feel like I haven't been a part of my real life since we did the last episode. But did you have a good time in Vegas? I That's... did. I was in Las Vegas. I was at the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, which oh, is my. not what it sounds like. It's not like, I, I don't know. It's... It sounds very raucous, Dave. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a raucous good time, but it's mostly a technology and media uh, oh, type fun. of convention. It's uh, one of the biggest things I've ever been to. It's certainly, it's. I know you and I do San Diego, San Diego Comic Con every year, and that's huge. Uh, in terms of attendees, mm. this is not as big as that in terms of attendees, but in terms of just floor space and booths and the amount of money that goes into uh, NAB is what, what they call yeah. it. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. Like booths like Red Digital Cinema or JVC or Canon, right. like they have screening rooms like in their booth that you have to like wait in line to like see screenings in the booth. Like the black magic digital had like essentially like a patio, like they had recreated it's in on the convention floor, but they had recreated like an outdoor cafe in their booth. Cause their so booth you're, is so enormous. You're telling and, me that these companies <clears throat> are putting more money into their booths than the random independent comic book companies do <laughs> at comic con. <laughs> but I'm saying even like your Warner brothers and your, That's and true, your yes, uh, yes. you know, your DC and Marvel, that big, a uh, big presence uh, at, at Comic Con. It's nothing compared to the, just the size of the presence at uh, the National Association of Broadcasters. It was uh, overwhelming, and I trust that's you why I'm having trouble. Like I said, slotting back into my normal everyday life. Yeah, there's only three people in this room. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, and so I trust that you got the word out about the podcast. That's not you what know, I was there we're, for. We're broadcasting, yeah. so they know no, I they was, get it. I was there for work, and as the listener knows, the two worlds do not mix. Do not that's mix. true. That's yes. true. I mix my, my real life with the podcast as often as possible. <laughs> yeah. Most of my coworkers don't know that I do this podcast or have this website. That is astonishing. <laughs> and I've worked there for six years. When we first started the show and I worked at Blockbuster, uh, one of my coworkers was an illustrator and she drew a, a picture of me and in the in the voice bubble, it said podcast, podcast. Cause I, <laughs> That's all you even, talk though, about? even though we're only like six <laughs> weeks in, I couldn't stop talking about it. Cause I was so fascinated with my own voice. All right. Well, uh, uh now I feel loose again. So we had to talk for a few minutes. Absolutely. To get loose, but we got to get to our, we got to bring that to a grinding uh, halt. Well, let's, yeah, let's put some <laughs> pasties on and bring you a free drink. Make you feel like we were still in Las there Vegas. There we go. That's what I need. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, let's the, uh, Let's get to the, the, let's pay some bills. Yes. And as always, yes, as, as people could tell, we have a guest, but we won't introduce him because we do not know if he stands by these products. (laughs) So, all right. All right. So this episode is brought to you by an eye for beauty directed by, uh, Denise Arcan, the Academy award winning director of the barbarian invasions and Jesus of Montreal. An Eye for Beauty follows Luke, a young, aspiring architect with a budding reputation. Together with his wife, Stephanie, the couple lives a seemingly perfect life in the beautiful Quebec countryside. When Luke travels to Toronto on a business trip, he meets and falls for Lindsay, a mysterious woman whose quiet yet captivating beauty threatens to turn his life upside down. A visually stunning drama complete with Arkan's signature razor-sharp wit and social commentary, An Eye for Beauty gazes into the perils of modern domestic life. The film is as intelligent and wry as only the best of Arkan's films can be, offering a series of, con- uh, of contemplations on man's long-standing battle over love, sex, and marriage. 
Okay, so here we go. An Eye for Beauty opens in New- has opened in New York on April 15th, Tax Day, David, uh, at Lincoln Plaza Cinemas. Traditionally so- Tax Day. This year, Tax Day was the 18th. Is that true? Yeah, it was yes. Monday. Oh. Huh. <laughs> I feel like I've been ripped off somehow by my accountant. But anyway, uh, but yeah, so if you are in the New York area, go to Lincoln Plaza Cinemas and check out an Eye for, Be- Eye for Beauty. And then by the time this episode goes up, it actually will have opened in Los Angeles as well uh, on the 22nd. So you can go to aneyeforbeautyfilm.com or you can click on the link at battleshippretension.com, which is always what we prefer, uh, for a complete list of the cities and uh, where it is playing. So an Eye for Beauty, check it out. But that's not our only sponsor, David, so just calm down. (laughs) I'm calm. This episode is also brought to you by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Movie's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. This week at Movie, they are celebrating National Canadian Film Day by exclusively showing uh, Adam McGoyan's ingenious 1993 drama Calendar, all about the emotional ties we have with our technology. David, you and I are Adam McGoyan fans, so that's very exciting. And technology fans, so I'm a little bit torn. That's true. We're both looking at our phones <laughs> at the moment. Um, also available is Happy Go Lucky, one of my favorite films uh, of 2008, a Mike Lee film uh, starring Sally Hawkins as an eternal optimist. If you've not seen it, I highly recommend it. It's marvelous. Uh, so there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. That's you. Uh, not you, David. I know that you can't stand this show. Never uh, you can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. And now on with the show. Yes, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Why don't you tell us uh, who our guest is? David, I'm very excited. So excited because uh, this is a guy who's been showing up in some of my favorite films. He is, he is in uh, my current favorite film of 2016, Hail Caesar. He was in my second favorite movie of last year, Bone Tomahawk. Uh, and he's, been in, uh, he's uh, been in a number of TV shows with, uh, in very memorable roles. Uh, but I, I was one of I, <clears throat> what I considered one of the most underrated films of a couple years ago, Get On Up. Is that, uh, wait, get on. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, and I Which know I that, saw twice. And I, I know that you really loved In a World, as did I. That made my, my top 10 list here on this podcast right. back in 2013. Um, but I think I was probably first introduced to him uh, in, in, uh, in a way that I was like, I need to pay very close attention to that guy. In the Coen Brothers, uh, a serious man, he played the character of Cy Abelman. Here he is, Fred Melamed. Thank you very much for that florid, beautiful introduction. It's much appreciated. And thanks for pointing out that I barged into all these wonderful films in my, in my cornball way. I, it's very kind of you. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, all the films we named were from from A Serious Man on, but you you had been working for a long yeah. time. To the, I, mean, when, I think when I saw A Serious Man, I didn't know, uh, people, didn't, people our age maybe didn't know your name at that point, but it was certainly like, oh, there was something recognizable because you've been in a lot of yeah. movies. Yeah, uh, I, I had a strange. It's a funny. I've had a kind of. I've, I've talked about it before. Um, I've had a kind of an odd trajectory uh, as an actor. Um, I got out of drama school in 1981, which is now 30, 30, exactly 35 years ago, March of 1981. Uh, and I was trained primarily as a theater actor. Um, actually, I should say entirely as a theater actor. I went to Yale Drama School, and at the time. 
the presumption was, the, the probably incorrect presumption was that if you were uh, competent as a theater actor, you wouldn't have any trouble transitioning to film or television, which were somewhat sneered at anyway, mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, but what happened was I went immediately from, uh, I should point out, we're, making, we're doing this podcast on the 21st of April, which is unf- it's a sad day for everybody. It's the day that Prince passed away. Yes. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because uh, in 1981, I got out of drama school, and the first job I got was at a theater in Minneapolis um, mm. called the Guthrie Theater. I was there for a year. And uh, there's a f- club in Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis, called First Avenue. And uh, a friend of mine went said, you have to see this guy, this guy Prince. And at the time, he was well-known in the Twin Cities, but he was not yet famous nationally, no less internationally. So anyway, I went to go see him at this club, this wonderful venue, and he just uh, blew my head off, mm-hmm. as he did everybody's. And, and his, uh, although he was, uh, his act was very, very much, as people got to see it several years later, it was fully formed. He was uh, brilliant as a performer, as a musician, as a composer, uh, as, a, as a dancer. I mean, it's remarkable the number of things that he did well. Um, but anyway, I remember thinking to myself, God, you know, as soon as people become aware of this guy, he's going to become just an enormous star. He's so powerful and so talented. And then, of course, about it, by, I think about a year later or so, it really, it, it, uh, it did happen. But anyway, I only bring that up because I got out of drama school in 81. I did that Guthrie season. And then I was in uh, a play on Broadway called Amadeus, the first American mm. um, production of Amadeus. I'm sure you're familiar with the yes. film and you may, may have seen the play. Um, and in that period, I was in it for 16 months. And during that time, I began to get terrible, crippling uh, problems with stage fright. I mean, really mm. severe, severe problems. So much so that I thought, ah, this is really awful. I made this horrible mistake. You know, I said, I'm going to be an actor. And people said, oh, it's so hard. You don't, you know, and I said, well, I'll show you. And I, you know, I had a Broadway gig and a show that was a very good show. It was one of Tony and several Tonys, actually. And I had a, you know, uh, and I loved it as a play. But uh, for some reason, uh, I found it very, very difficult after about seven or eight months to go on. I continued for 16 so by the time I was done with it, I thought, I don't ever want to set foot on stage again. I just made this mm. huge mistake. And I felt very defeated and very bad about it. And it was a very dark uh, you know, time in my life. And I happened... Do you, uh, do you think it might have been the success of the play that like, you felt pressure put on you? That like, oh, people are talking about this play. I need to really step it up. Uh, what, do you I think, I think that, that was an element, but I don't think yeah. that was the main thing. I mean, I think that heightened the pressure, as you yeah. say. I think, I think what it really was about was, uh, as, as, many, as many in our profession, in my profession do, I think I had chosen some not, I think I had some not so mentally healthy reasons for choosing to be an actor <laughs> in the first place, uh, which are complicated, but I, I think to sort of simplify them, I... I my father who I was very close to and loved uh, very much, and he was a great guy, very kind, sweet person, but uh, rather depressed. And I somehow got the idea when I was a young kid that it was my role in life, my responsibility to make it seem like life was a winnable proposition to him and mm-hmm. to other people. And I took that, that rather huge burden on my shoulders as an actor. And I thought an actor has to be kind of superhuman, which is kind of not the way I look at it now. I view an actor as having to be human with certain uh, sort of strengths. But uh, 
I, I think that yoke I resented, even though I had chosen it. I think I observed as a child that this was a great power to have, to make people um, happy, to make them laugh, to make them feel that uh, heroic uh, action was practical, was, was possible. Um, I was, in a sense, overwhelmed with that power. I was so pleased to have that power. But at the same time, uh, it became burdensome. And I think that informed itself, that insinuated itself into my acting very hmm. deeply. So I began to resent having to prepare so much psychologically for the audience and even resent the audience's presence. And to this day, I still like rehearsing much yeah. better than I like. I'm not uncomfortable in front of audiences. I've just been on Broadway and done other things since, and it's gotten much better. But I still like rehearsing mm -hmm. uh, better, where you're inventing, you're trying different things. And film acting, in a sense, is like rehearsing. Not, not so much because uh, you can do it again, although that's part of it, but more because uh, you're trying things. You try different things, and it, the whole thing is rather chemical. You... <laughs> acting, all kinds of acting, but especially on film, uh, you ha you prepare something as an actor. You have something in your mind that you're trying to do. But at the same time, you have to be open to whatever is coming back from the other actors and from the reality of the of the scene, whatever it is, the room that you're in, the, the, all the sense, sensory input that you're getting. You have to do both. You have to both do your prepared thing, and then you kind of have to, I mean, the way I think of it is you have to put it on like a coat and wear it and actually live in it. It's no good if you, if, you, if you do something that's a set piece. You have to be alive. You, know, you have to be respond to whatever it is you're getting. So you have to do both of these things. Um, so in rehearsing or in film acting, that's kind of the way it goes. And you can rehearse and be... I'm sure you've had the other actors or other directors come on and say this. Sometimes on paper you think something's going to be great. You have this thing that's well-written, and you think, well, these are great actors. This should be great. And for some reason, that's, sometimes you can identify it, sometimes you can't. Uh, it just doesn't, it's just not, it doesn't catch fire like it should. We have a lot of uh, comedians on the show, <laughs> and they regularly talk about, like, they write what they think is like, this this is gold. This is maybe the funniest thing I've ever written. Then they come to us. Oh yeah, not everybody has had my specific experiences and have and would arrive at this being the funniest thing ever. And they just get like awkward silences. And eventually they're like, I have to actually let this thing go. Are you kidding me? I thought it was the best thing ever. And I literally can't tell anybody because nobody seems to want to hear it. Imagine if it's not just one joke, but it's <laughs> yeah. three years of your life. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're Absolutely. like a writer director, like, you know, like Bell, like who you mentioned or, or Woody Allen or a million other people that I know, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a simple proposition. You put years of your life into it. Yeah. And then for some reason it just doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's not alive the way that it should be. Anyway. Um, so, there's a chemical element to it that you can't quite uh, predict. You do your best to do it, mm -hmm. and you you know everybody's prepared. That gives you an advantage, but you never know. So that mysterious element of it is part of what makes it so fun, and also so slightly nervous making. If you are of a mind to be nervous about it, but once you do it enough, you feel well. Okay, I'm confident about it. Anyway, this is a whole long explanation, but. I, I didn't like uh, performing in front of an audience because that, I, I didn't feel like I could create something new in front of an audience. And instead, I was trying to recreate something. And 
some part of me did, didn't want to do it. Really didn't want to do it. So in a sense, you're like getting to the point where you're trying to reverse engineer what you're supposed. You're, you're starting at where you're supposed to be, and then trying to make it happen again every night. Whereas in rehearsal or on film, it can be more organic. Is that, is that yes? What you're and and in, I mean, and a good stage actor is able to uh, do exactly <laughs> what you said, not reverse engine. But that's a, that's a that's a very uh, apt way of putting it. Uh, starting with the result first, in a sense, which is kind of what they tell you not to do in <laughs> acting. But sometimes uh, you, you, you know, your part of you wants to do that anyway. Anyway, this is also a long way of saying that I stopped acting. Um, I had an agent who was very big in voiceovers, very powerful in voiceovers, and I began to do voiceovers. And I was a young guy; I was unmarried. Uh, I didn't have any children. I didn't have any real uh, responsibilities other than my own welfare. And uh, I started making a significant amount of money doing this. And I was still young. I was 27 or 8, quite young. Uh, and occasionally I would do films um, because uh, I was in the fortunate position of not having to need to work. So <clears throat> there are a few casting directors that like me. There's a, a Juliet Taylor who direct, casting directs all Woody Allen's films and mm-hmm. other people. And there's another guy, Howard Fuhr and Barbara Shapiro, some others, who liked me. And they would call up and say, well, uh, Woody has a movie. It's a psychiatrist. It's four days. He would like you to do it. You want to do it? So, no. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, and, uh, and I did seven films with Woody uh, on those terms, pretty much. Hmm. Um, but I lost my desire to really do what you have to do if you want to be a good actor, which is really dig somewhat deeper hmm. uh, in yourself and expose things uh, somewhat more bravely. You know, there's there's a. It's hard to even say it's a documentary. It's hard to know exactly what it is. There's this uh, uh, Lewis Mao film called Vanyan Forty Second Street. Yes, I know it. It's it is to me astonishing. And Criterion put out this wonderful Blu-ray that also where the making of it's not as interesting because there's not as much craft putting it put into the the filmmaking. But the making of is so fascinating because. When you find out what the what it was, um, that just all of these actors getting together and it's just perpetual rehearsal for no eventual performance. Like mm-hmm. there, there's no, they're not planning on ever doing anything in front of an audience. It's just complete experimentation. And um, Andre Gregory was the uh, the director of, I guess you could say director orchestrator. One could say, mm-hmm. um, and he would just an actor would come in and he'd say, "How are you feeling today?" And the person's like, "Yeah, I'm kind of off. Yeah, I just." You know, I had a fight with my wife. I'm just not in a good place. And it's like, okay, you're playing that today. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that doesn't really fit with what the character is. Like, I don't care. You're <laughs> playing that today. And they would just change the, just the freedom to do that and, and completely, first off, just meld the characters with themselves as much as possible, which I think Uncle Vanya can kind of lend itself to. Mm-hmm. But you watch the actors talk about that experience as opposed to any other play or movie they'd ever done. And they just said like, you can tell it's maybe the most artistically invigorating thing they've ever done because it is what you're talking about. It's perpetual rehearsal. Yeah, and, and without, without the sort of Damocles of a performance hanging over your head, uh, it's amazing, uh, this is such a corny word, but it's a, it, it, it is really astounding uh, how uh, it opens up the floodgates yeah. of creativity. You don't think, well, I have to get to a, I have to get to a certain point. And uh, by the way, that, it, that, that, that film, I always think, if you, don't, if you didn't know or fall in love with Julianne Moore before you saw that movie, yeah. that would seal the deal, I always thought, about that movie. Um, 
Tyler's uh, story just there about about Andre Gregory being the director, it made me think of. Um, you've been in a lot of Woody Allen movies and he uh, notoriously doesn't talk much to the actors. Um, what is that experience like? Are, are you, are, are you just, are you feeding more off of the other actors then for your, your performance or uh, making adjustments or and do you prefer having a director who's not as hands on? I, I've changed as I've, as I've grown older and more experienced. I used to uh, be looking for uh, more uh, backslapping and more reassurance. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which is sort of human nature, I guess. But as and and it's interesting, I, you know, there are certain actors who 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 want a so-called actor's director. Um, I prefer not to have that. I prefer to have. I mean, I don't mind a director who gets deeply involved, like for example, Marty Scorsese does. You know, he's right there with you. He talks to you. He's very present. But I would like to. I would like my directors to know how to handle putting whatever the actors do. Into the into the format to make it the most uh, affecting that they can. How to how to package it is wrong, not the right word, but how to present it. Um, and I would rather be left alone to do my work, provided I don't go in a bad direction. I mean, obviously, if I'm going off in a, in a, if I'm going off the deep end, I should be pulled back and told. But I don't need or seek a lot of direction. Um, I like to be creative, and most of the act, most of the directors that I've worked with that I've really admired. Are like that. When I worked with the Coen Brothers for the first time, which was in A Serious Man, for example, um, I was really surprised because I knew them a little bit because I had gone to school with um, Fran McDormand, who's of course married to Joel, and John Turturro, and I knew John Goodman, some other people from their kind of you know stock company, their retinue. But uh, their films look so orchestrated, they look so controlled uh, that I was very surprised that in terms of performance. They give you very, very little. They write extremely well and extremely exactly. Mm-hmm. And they would prefer, they're, they're sticklers about having you stick very specifically to what it is that they've written. But uh, when it comes to how you play the character, um, they spend a really long time casting. I've learned some tricks, some mm. tricks, not the right word, but some, let's say some wisdom from them and Woody and some other people that I've worked with. Um, it's worth it to spend the extra time casting a movie really to your liking mm-hmm. um, and so that you really feel confident in the people that you've hired. Um, and then when you get to the set, it makes the whole uh, vibe of the set better in every way, in every way. So with the Coens, I was really surprised that they physically know what they want to do. They don't get to the set and say, "Well, maybe we'll put the camera over here, and maybe we'll, you know, move mm-hmm. that line." They they have that you when you get your sides for that day's shooting. You know what sides are, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. case listeners don't, uh, that's just a little bit of the script. You've already learned your lines, presumably, and know what you're doing. But to kind of keep you uh, your mind. Uh, on it and exactly what you, you, you want to be doing, you get a little uh, sheet that has all the lines and the scenes of that day's shooting. And usually that's all you get. But with the Coen brothers, you also get on the back of them a kind of a comic book, a storyboard, which shows you physically huh. how the scenes are set up. You see where you are, where whoever else is in the scenes is, and also where the camera is. And if there's anything important uh, besides you, like if there's a, you know, a car or a you're standing by a ravine or something like that. That's all there. So you have a very strong physical idea of what the scene will like before you even get there. That's very helpful. 
It's, it helps you plan what, what it is that you want to do. Um, so they know very uh, clearly how they want to approach a film long before they ever get to the set. Mm-hmm. But they, they hire actors who I think they feel they trust, they're confident about, uh, and then they, they, in most instances, kind of let them run. Which would definitely explain why they will use the same people over and over again. It's just like, at this point, I'm sure when they're writing something, it's like, well, John Goodman is going to be this part, and that'll save us a lot of time and energy. Uh, because at the very least, I'm sure they're thinking, okay, now I know better how to write the part. And Yeah, and in fact, they know their, their actors so well as people, not just as actors. I mean, part of their whole thing is they have to like the people that they work with, which is, a, which is if, you're in, if you have the great luxury to be able to discriminate between people you like to work with and, the, and you know, not work with those you don't, as they do, um, it makes it all much better. But they also actually think, I mean, I've had discussions uh, with Ethan about this, they think, well, okay, what would, be, what, how, what would be an interesting thing to see George Clooney do? Something that he hasn't done. <laughs> what, what would be, which is, I mean, that may be why uh, he so often uh, ends up as, you know, morons, uh, yeah. dunderheads in their, in their <laughs> films, um, since he's, you know, rarely in other people's films is he playing that kind of role. But they, they think of various actors uh, that they like working with, and they think, well, what could, I, what, what, what could we do that would be, you know, what would be fun to see him do, or interesting, or different to see him do, something that he hasn't necessarily been called on to do. Uh, you know, people think of John Goodman's performance uh, in Lebowski as being sort of iconic. Well, uh, nobody had actually seen John Goodman do anything like that, or, or maybe anybody do anything like that. Um, you know, that character is, uh, to a significant uh, extent, based on a real-life guy who was a famous screenwriter, and, and a, lot, oh, yeah. a lot of people knew him. Uh, but, uh, you know, that performance was entirely a new thing for him. Um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was um, a PA on a movie in 2006 that was a Paramount Vantage movie, uh, and it was at the same time that the Coens were making... Uh, no Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. and I ended up at a like a rap lunch where I, a PA, got to sit with one of the producers at Paramount Vantage, and he was like, yeah, they're off in Texas. I don't really know what they're doing right now, but Coen Brothers movies, they always come in under budget, and they always make their money back, so we kind of let them do whatever they want. They, they, I, you know, if I worked with them and with Woody and if you only worked with them, you would have a very distorted idea <laughs> of what working on movies is usually like <laughs> because from their very first picture which is now 18, I think, 17 or 18 in, they've made. Um, they, I guess it depends if you count like the shorts, like in Paris, did they do, or in New York, I love it. which one do they do a short in? Anyway, I'm getting yeah, like nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. A- anyway, from their very first one, they've had a final cut and no, no uh, kind of uh, producer presence, uh, hardly at all. I mean, you, you know, you, you, the, the, there's a producer there, but you, there's nobody running around going, well, let's, can't we do it with this less expensive actor? Oh, we're yeah. about to lose a light. Uh, can't you make do with one horse instead of three? You know, all the kind of normal things that the, that the mere mortals have to deal with uh, when, they, <laughs> when they direct, especially when they write and direct uh, films. Um, so it's a, and, and you have this great uh, kind of good time, which is filled with work, but it's pleasurable work. It's deeply gratifying work. And at the end of it, you have this film. No. And that's that is not always the case <laughs> with making films where, you know, um, uh, films are uh, let me I, I'm, I'm telling this long story of my career, but let me digress. I want to tell you my favorite story about making films, about about how films are made and directing. Absolutely. Films. Um, uh, this this story, 
I heard from, um, oh God, Gray, what's his first name? He did um, Be on the Night and... Um, oh, James, F. Gary? James Gray. James oh, Gray. No, okay. F. Gary Gray, somebody else. <laughs> so this is his story. Story is, uh, they were shooting uh, Godfather, the first Godfather movie. And the very first day of shooting Godfather was that enormous scene of the wedding, mm-hmm. as you remember. And it was an enormous you know, scene. There was like 300 extras, very expensive, very complicated technically and all that stuff. And Francis had hired to play Luca Brazzi. I'm sure you remember the character Luca Brazzi. Mm-hmm. He had hired a guy named Lenny Montana who was a professional wrestler. He was not a, uh, a professional actor. In fact, he had never done a film before. But there's a scene in the movie in which he gets garroted, you might remember, where, mm-hmm. where he's uh, killed. And uh, Lenny Montana had this unbelievable ability to pop his eyes out. He somehow could make it look very real that he was being <laughs> choked. Uh-huh. So, and you know, he looked right and he was right, so Francis hired him to, to play this role. Uh, however, he was very nervous acting. And the very first scene that he had to shoot was a scene with Marlon Brando. And of course, he was more nervous than ever that he would be ordinarily because it was Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando, being the way he was, was kind of being a jerk about it, you know, uh, kind of like teasing him and making fun of him and stuff like that. And he couldn't, and he was supposed to say, I want to thank you, Godfather, for the honor of inviting me to your daughter's wedding. Or, or as he's, you know, I want to thank you, Godfather, for the honor of inviting me to your daughter's wedding. And he couldn't get the line right. They kept, he said, I want to thank you, Godfather, for, for the honor of inviting me to your daughter's wedding on the day of your daughter's wedding. <laughs> so he kept doing this, and he kept doing it, right? And they couldn't get it right. And finally, Francis said, okay, that's it. We've got it. We've got it. And Robert Evans said, what do you mean? We, we, you never got it. And Fred said, no, no, we have it. Robert Evans said, what do you, he never said it right. Francis said, don't worry. So in, before the next setup, while they were changing scenes, he constructed this little scene where Lenny Montana was sitting outside at a little picnic table practicing this line uh-huh. that he was going to say to the Godfather. So, and you, you see it in the movie. He's sitting out there going, I want to thank you, Godfather, for the, for the honor of inviting me to your daughter's <laughs> wedding. And he had some children run through it. So that it looks great. So you see how nervous he is. So that then when he cut that into the final movie, it makes his getting the line wrong perfect. Mm-hmm. But it was never intended. <laughs> and the whole uh, moral of the story is that a film is special. Well, any film, but obviously, especially a big film like that, films are like wild horses. They always get away from you. So you have to deal with everything in the course of putting, to, putting them together. I remember saying to Ethan, when, when I got to be friends with them, Joel and Ethan, I said, you know, um, uh, they have a film, oh, I can't remember the name of the film now, but it's one of, one of my favorite, favorite films. Uh, it's certainly my favorite film of theirs, Man Who Wasn't There. Mm, uh, not, not a beloved film from their catalog by... Not by most people. Some people like it, but yeah, I, most people are pretty dumb. <laughs> That's a wonderful film. I didn't want to say that. <laughs> it's my podcast. Listeners are used to it. But I, I love that film. I just love it. And I said to Ethan, you know, I the whole, everything about the film, the writing, the performances, the way it looks, the it just. And he said to me, you know, we could never get Billy Bob's wig right, and uh, John Polito was giving me a hard time about that. It, it was for him. It was a litany. All the creative stuff, the stuff that was so beautiful to me that I was remarking upon, was long in the past by the time they got to the set. He had written it, he had thought about it, he had cast it, and the set was one set of problems after another to be overcome. Hmm. So his memory yeah. of making that film was not 
the great film that I think it is. It was like <laughs> one pain in the ass thing after another that had to be dealt with. And somehow he dealt with them all. But he, he, and he and Joel dealt with them, but it was never quite what they wanted. Woody Allen told me on another occasion, um, he, I, I, he, I, I don't remember how it had happened. I, I said um, that Manhattan was probably my second favorite film of his. He said, oh, can't look at it. I said, really? He said, hate it, can't look at it, cannot look at it. I said, why? He said, it's just nothing like what I had in mind. It's so far from what I wanted it to be. It's so distantly inferior to what I wanted and so completely the other color from what I wanted that it's just, it's totally depressing to me to look at it. Now, to me, that's such a great film. I can't imagine what was in his mind initially, I mean, what he wanted it to be. It what just, if it was worse? That happens sometimes. <laughs> Maybe it could have been. Like, you know, you hear stories about George Lucas and his initial idea of what the characters from Star Wars would be. And now a lot of it was was limited by budget and just technology at the time. And when you hear about what Han Solo was meant to be, what Luke Skywalker was meant to be, he's like, ugh. Thank God for budget constraints. Like yeah. this is this thing that sounds awful. Yeah, I uh, remember. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I just that that that, uh, that reminds me of um, how uh, famously Stephen King hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining mm. movie. Yes. and I think it's because it's so different from his book. He is unable to see it as a good movie, no matter what, because yeah. it's just not his his story. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I mean, t- I've never read the book. And to me, it stands up very well as a, as a movie. I mean, but mm-hmm. I'm obviously, you know, not its creator. But it's it's. It, I could see where if some if you were that close to something, how seeing something that was so uh, different from what you'd envisioned would be a great disappointment. You wouldn't be able to get over that aspect of things. So anyway, to to back to come back around to the initial story, I stopped acting, except for doing voiceovers for a very long time, except for an occasional role in a Woody Allen film, or I did a, a film with Cher called Suspect, or another film called The Good Mother, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't pursue it with any real uh, uh, fervor. And then uh, I started to, uh, much later, because economically I was forced to, because I had children and I was married, and then I stopped making so much money in voiceovers because uh, there was a sort of a sea change in voiceovers and they wanted people... Uh, who sounded like real people hmm. rather than like, you know, dramatic James Earl Jonesy kind of sound, like I am like my voice. So, um, I was, so I get those Carl's jr. Ads that are like Carl's jr. Like, <laughs> exactly. kind of, it's like some jag off yeah, the street. It like he couldn't even like wake up enough to do the, <laughs> <laughs> well, the, more often they, they sound like what, what it used to happen is they'd make a, 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 a dummy track. The editor who was a film editor would make a, a, a scratch track and it would just sound like, you know, instead of, I, by the way, I have to compliment you on your reading of that movie trailer. I, I thought it was, it had both in excitement and the regular guy quality oh, that, is, nice. that is so much in demand today. I'm pretty folksy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what they want. Anyway, so I was, I, I, I didn't go back to acting in movies with any um, great... Uh, eagerness. I, I was forced to because I wasn't making any money. And I had this friend, <clears throat> and he said to me, listen, uh, if money weren't a problem for you like it is, uh, what would you like to do? Because I had a year's worth of money before I was like really in bad trouble. I said, well, if money weren't an issue, I'd like to go back to making 
uh, movies and writing like I used to when I started out. He said, so why don't you try? So I did, to no great uh, success initially. I was like on a couple of, you know, Law and Orders or something, and not that great. And then one day I was sitting at home with my wife, and we lived in Montauk, out in Montauk on the east end of Long mm-hmm. Island. And my wife got the phone, and she said, do you know a Joel Cohen? And I happened to know an accountant named Joel Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Joel Cohen the accountant? Or Joel Cohen, Joel and Ethan Cohen? And I knew them a little bit because I had known, you know, Fran McDormand well and John Turturro. And I had also auditioned for Barton Fink many years hmm. before. What part, out of curiosity? For Barton, for Barton Fink? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Jack Lipnick, the movie nice. producer, who was, who, who, the guy who, who was in it is fantastic. He was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway... Um, I didn't get it. I, according to Ethan, I placed. I came in second. Mm. But I was a little younger also than he was. So um, it was Joel Cohn of Joel and Ethan Cohn. He said, hi, listen, uh, we've written this movie. It's called A Serious Man. And there's a part in it which uh, I just have a feeling you'd be really good in this part. It's kind of an unusual part. It's not huge, but it's very important in the story. Uh, are you interested? And I was like, let me get my book. <laughs> yeah, of course I'm interested. So he sent it to me and I read it. I thought, wow, this is such a great, interesting movie and it's a wonderful part. And he said, and I, I went to New York and I talked, talked with him about it. I said, Dad, we definitely want you to do it. But the only thing is, we're working on three movies kind of simultaneously. One is Burn After Reading. Uh, one is A Serious Man. And I guess the third, I'm not sure what the third was. Maybe it was... Um, Probably True Grit, True Grit early on. Like, that was the one they did after A Serious Man. It could have been True Good, or it could have been the other way. I'm not sure if it was. Oh, oh, No Country for Old Men. It could have been No Country. I I, I don't remember. But anyway, there were three movies that were all kind of in the hopper at once. And they said, we have to do um, Burn After Reading based on the availability of, it it was stars that had Brad Mm -hmm. Pitt in it and George Clooney and big stars. So they couldn't get them all together easily. So they had to do that. uh, That was important to get done scheduling-wise. So meanwhile, I'm waiting and I'm running out of money and a year passes. I think, oh man, this is going to never happen. You know, it's one of those great things where you read a great script and this has happened, it happens to every actor uh, and you think, oh, I can't wait, this is going to be great. And then the financing falls apart or a big star drops out of it or a director doesn't want to do it anymore or something contractually doesn't Mm -hmm. pan out right and, and it just never gets made. This happens, you know. It's not so unusual. So I thought, oh, gosh, this is so terrible. This is going to never happen. And then finally, after about a year and a half, they called and said, oh, we're going to start. And I, was, and I was really, I was really, I mean, I was going to like have to get a job in a bank. It was getting grim. So You're going to have to call the other Joel Cohen. Exactly. Do you need a secretary? <laughs> exactly. So um, I made the movie with them in, uh, in Minneapolis uh, in, uh, and had a great time making it and all that. And then it took almost another year for it to come out because of how long post-production you mm-hmm. know, takes, particularly with them because they're so, you know, they put everything together so precisely you know, assiduously careful about everything. Anyway, Roderick James is just so particular as an editor. (laughs) Won't even be interviewed. (laughs) Um, I also, I, I, I have a theory that people who start out as editors, as Joel did, as they both did in a sense, um, often make very, very good directors. David Lean was also an editor. Yeah. Robert Wise. Robert Wise too. Uh, because they think of a movie as a, in a different way, in a, as a completed form, mm-hmm. in a sense. And they think of it economically, I, I don't mean economically money-wise, I mean uh, elegantly, 
not to, and you know, you shoot very, compared to other people, you shoot very, very little coverage with them. You know, they, they, they know what they want. They know what they want in terms of camera placement. They know what they want in terms of performance. They know what they want in terms of the look of the movie. So you're saying Terrence Malick, probably not an editor. <laughs> <laughs> not an editor of movies, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, 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 actually, T- Terrence Malick showed up one day on the set of um, Hail Caesar. Hmm. Uh, to, we had this beautiful set. Uh, that that beach house that was supposed to be Channing Tatum's uh, fancy beach house was actually all a set uh, in in Hollywood. And it was a beautiful, elaborate set. And one day, Terrence Malick just showed up. I think the, I think they knew him a little bit, but he just kind of called and said, "Can I come over?" And he did, and you know that was it. But I just got to say hi, but nothing deeper than that. Hmm. Um, anyway, so so t- this is all by a long way of explaining. So I didn't really begin this phase of my this kind of second wonderful second act of my career, which I'm very uh, fortunate to have and very appreciative of, uh, until uh, that movie, until that Coen Brothers movie, which came out in 2000, and we made it in 2008, came out in 2009. So that's really only seven years ago uh, that I've been, you know, really active again making movies and television. I mean, it is, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me that they they pitch the role of Cy Abelman as like, well, he's, you know, not that important a role, but he's, 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 it's not a big role, but it's important. Well, they didn't to say me, not, like, they didn't say not, they didn't say not important. They said that it's not, it's not huge. Not huge. The, yeah. But important. Yes. Yeah. He's very important in the movie. Yeah. It's not only is it vital, but also he is one of the characters. I mean, I, I love a lot of those performances. I love a lot of those characters, but I mean, when I come away from the film, I think of, you know, Larry, uh, and I think of Cy, um, and just, I think the first time anyone is referred to as a serious man in yeah. the movie, it's at spoilers size funeral. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think I think the he is the eponymous serious man of the movie. You know, yeah. in my view, anyway. And it is kind of funny that they uh, that just as uh, voiceover work starts to change and move away from that author- authoritative uh, James Earl Jones kind of thing, you get cast as Psy. Whose way of speaking couldn't be more, you know, yeah. that, that it, so when you, so I do want to talk, I don't want to dwell too much, uh, on, on this one film cause there are other things to talk about, but, um, you know, admittedly everything about a serious man is heightened. Everything is, the energy level is, is heightened and it's a very stressful film with maybe one of the most stressful trailers of all time. But, um. But you're playing it, you know, you play a character who has such a precise way of speaking and such a, one could say, even an outlandish way of speaking. Um, I mean, do you look at that and think, like, how am I even supposed, how am I supposed to sell this as, like, a real human being? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think uh, I, you know, he didn't seem, the thing about people like that is, well, to speak about it in a general sense, all evil uh, in the world, uh, is people who think if only the world would, would listen to me, everything would be great. <laughs> it is. It's exciting that um, you said that. Cause I was looking at a, on, on YouTube, there's a clip of, of one of the notable Cy Abelman scenes. And in the comment section, someone said Cy Abelman is one of the most evil characters in all of film history. <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a book, um, the 25 greatest screen villains and he's listed I'm, to my, to my great pride. He's listed, he's, I'm listed in there as one of the greatest uh and and ethan cohen said in a uh in an interview in 
can't remember what it was. I think it was Empire. It was a British uh, cinema magazine said that uh, that my character, for his money, was the greatest um, monster movie monster ever filmed. <laughs> and I think there's I think there's some truth to that. But when I read it, um, he seemed as as ridiculous as he is. I've known a lot of people like that in my life uh, yeah. who who really think you know. Uh, the world would swing if I were king. If it was just listen to me, uh, things would be so much better. Yeah. And in fact, selfishness is really what evil is. It's just selfishness. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's, um, I, I, very few people I think set out to do harm exactly. They just, no. it's just in their nature to think that what's right for them is right for everybody else. Yeah. And you uh, know, there, there's an element to a serious man that I find so fascinating because you know, I don't know much about the world of, of Judaism, especially from a cultural standpoint. <laughs> but so much of that movie is is just rooted in that culture. And while I can't relate to that specifically, I grew up Christian. I am still a Christian. And there's definitely a Christian culture. And there's something to, you know, not to speak ill of, of religion as an idea, because I myself am religious, but in in a, in a pious world... Uh, and a pious culture. I have also met people like Cy Edelman in, but in a different, often with a different type of accent who just like, you know, bless your heart so much, you know, and they just, they're so nice, so gentle, but there's so much judgment yeah, and it's, self. I, it's, yeah. God bless you. I hope you, I hope God forgives you. <laughs> for, or, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, there's a danger. I'm a believer in, God too, although I will say that the God, what little I know about God, and there's not much that I can say I do know, but I don't think it has much to do with Judaism or Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some principles that I, that I can apply and some sort of dramatic stories, but they're more illustrative than literal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you believe you're, t- I mean, I, I attempt to take direction in my own life from God occasionally. Uh, you know, in the in the tradition of of um, meditation, not 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 the Eastern tradition, like where you are, empty your mind, but the more the Western tradition, where you sort of allow instead of praying, which means you address God, you do the opposite. You sort of allow God to address you. Mm-hmm. Um, when particularly when things are troubling me, when I don't know what to do about something, when I, you know, particularly in that situation. But yeah. um, but the problem is. If you really feel you're getting your direction from God, that can make you awfully arrogant about everybody else's uh, idea of what's right and what should be done in the world. And there's a lot of that in Psy. There's there's a lot of that in Psy. There's a lot of that in the Crusades. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in blowing up the blowing up the 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 Boston Marathon. I mean, that's that's. There's something about Psy Edelman's. The uh, I guess I already uh, spoiled that the character dies in the movie, but. the the outfit he wears on the last day of his life <laughs> is golfing out of it. Yeah, that baby is, blue. <laughs> it's something I think you've referred to the character as ridiculous. Tyler said outlandish. There's something about that that look, but with complete self confidence. <laughs> yeah, that's almost kind of like Mussolini esque. <laughs> well, there's a there's a great quote. I can't remember who said it, but and I'm, of course I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not going to get it right exactly, but the effect is that um, really people who really think rightly are full of doubt. Mm-hmm. It's those who have no doubt that have to be, we have to protect ourselves <laughs> no. against. Yeah. 
um, especially, especially where matters of moral judgment are concerned, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think Sai looks around and sees people like Larry all over, incompetent, no. cowering, <laughs> you know, half successes, pathetic, uh, you know, partial successes. And he really thinks, I think he really believes um, that he could do a better job uh, leading Larry's life and yeah. going to bed with his wife and raising his children and living in his house and driving <laughs> his car and make better use of everything that is Larry's and probably better use of everybody's everything, you know. Larry, you're not totally utilizing your resources. Just let me do it and <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll operate at full potential. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, um, a marvel- it's a marvelous character and it's a... Uh, you might, don't mind my saying, Marvel's performance as well. Well, that's very kind. I appreciate that. I think I also think that I have a sort of an advantage. I think I think my own persona, my voice and my face and my, the way I look, I look so and sound so authoritative that I'm particularly a good choice to play somebody who abuses authority. Mm. Um. And I think use is, I've been cast again and again as bad parents, as you, as you may <laughs> yeah. see from looking at my filmography. <laughs> um, because I, I think, you know, I, I have that air of somebody who doesn't question himself too much, <laughs> but <laughs> comes off, uh, you know, like, like he really thinks he knows what's best. The guy well, walks around. Um, I get it. Yeah. Uh, this uh, this is a, a sort of transition into uh, In a World, which, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I adore that movie. Um, but the the character, is it Sam? Is it the yeah. character in the um, where Whereas Cy Evelman, like I mentioned, is full of self-confidence. I think Sam projects self-confidence, but I think his insecurities are so apparent and right. so, like, up on, uh, on, on the surface. Um, did... Uh, uh, Lake Bell came to you with that role? Is that it? yes? I I didn't know Lake at all. I mean, I'd seen her and stuff, but I didn't. I never met her or anything. And at the time, we were still living in the East. We were my wife and kids and I were living uh, in Montauk. And my agent uh, said, uh, "Do you know who Lake Bell is?" And I said, "Well, sort of. I know she is. I'm you know she was on Children's Hospital." And, mm-hmm. But he said, "Well, uh, she came into my office and she left a script for you." And it's a script of this movie that she's written and she wants to direct and she really wants you to do it. She's very serious about it. So I, I went to his office to go pick it up and I read it and I thought it was great. I, thought, I mean, she was a young, quite, she wrote it when she was 28. Oh. So I was awfully impressed with it uh, as a piece of writing. And she wrote me this beautiful handwritten note saying, uh, you know, the, the, I really want you to play this part. I think you'd be great in this part. And, and you know, I know you may not know who I am and this is, but and she described to me a little bit about who she was in her life, and uh, I I thought it was terrific. Um, you're right uh, that he's uh, unlike Sai. Um, he's his feet of clay are so obvious uh, that there's a little bit more of an ex- explanation as to why he's such a uh, louse. <laughs> uh, although I mean he he. Sai kind of, I mean, I guess Sai doesn't kind of let it show quite so much, although it's probably obvious, it's, or thinks he doesn't let it show so much. Um, uh, Sam is a showbiz person, and uh, a success in a particular avenue of show business where there's great insecurity anyway. You know, whenever you have a situation where there's massive money to be made for light work, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> there isn't voiceovers, uh, there's always jealousy, there's always... Um, 
kind of looking over your shoulder to see who's, you know, who the new hot people are and all that kind of stuff. And um, that the, the, I, I actually plowed those fields for many years myself. And Lake didn't know about that, that when she cast mm, me. In that. I was going to ask. Yeah. No, she didn't. Uh, she just thought it was plausible that I would do that. Um, when I actually met her, I told her, and it was, you know, it was, we had a, a laugh over it. Um, but that, the reason that I thought that I wanted to play that character so much, uh, that Sam character, was because uh, he is so horrible, and yet he does love his, in his screwy way, he does love his children. Uh, and he is so clearly um, racked with, with self-doubt. Uh, so much so that he can't. I mean, some people. I've seen people say about that movie, "Oh, that couldn't be. I can't believe a father could actually be that much of a jerk to his daughter." But I've seen it many times, yeah. many yeah. times. And people who feel competitive with their children—not necessarily about uh, you know what their career is, but about all sorts of things. You know, I think it is uh, a real testament to the script that you know when you look at at. Sai and Sam, they are, they're similar characters in some ways, some I'd say superficial ways. But Sai, I would say, is, for a number of reasons, pretty irredeemable. <laughs> Sam is not. Like, he really does, he genuinely does mean well. Uh, he get, his own ego gets in the way, his own desire for approval and success gets in the way and that kind of thing. But he does genuinely want good for the people that he loves. Um, and I feel like that really comes through because I'm a big. I just saw what did I, I just saw a movie called The Meddler, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm a big fan of. I thought it was really, really great. And I'm a. I really like when there are characters that seem obvious, that on paper could be obvious. Uh, it's just like, all right, we all know what we're going to get with a character like this. But then the writer and the actor um, and the director, in this case, same as the writer, but um, they work together to kind of subvert our expectations and our assumptions about that character. And so the reason that I like the character of Sam so much is because when you first see him, you feel like I got this guy pegged. I know exactly what he's like. And over the course of the film, I was like, no, there's a lot more to him. And actually he's a lot more relatable maybe than I'm even comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, there's, there's tremendous. I don't know. And I, I feel like that about every character in that, in that film. I feel like she has a real affection for her characters. Yeah. That's a mark to me. That's always a mark of good writing. Um, where your expectations are, are are subverted, as you say. Um, I mean, I remember thinking when I when I read it, and then when I saw it again, the whole scene at the end in the bathroom where um, where uh, the uh, I can't I think her name was Catherine Hewling in the film, where Gina Davis's character um, admits to her why she chose her, and it's mm-hmm. not for her great ability. Yeah. I thought that was such a great piece of writing because you're used to seeing, and you know, uh, merit is awarded, is, is rewarded, you know, of course, yeah. and of course our heroine does, and then she says, no, no, I did it, you know, because uh, I want to do something for women in general, but it wasn't really you, it was a, yeah. you know, and, and, and uh, then Lake's character has to deal with that. Um, <clears throat> it's always, I mean, there are three, in order to be great, there are three conditions that something, a work of art has to meet, or even just a minor piece of a work of art. The first thing is that it has to be true. It has to strike you uh, as true in some very visceral way. Secondly, it has to surprise you, even though its truth is clear. Mm-hmm. You have to say, well, you know, I didn't quite, 
yes, that's true, but I didn't quite expect it or know it. And then third, it has to be inevitable. In other words, you can't make something quirky for the sake of for the sake of a surprise. You can't, you know, make a character. Um, you can't load it with with surprises that don't that don't uh, organically um, emanate from the truth of the character. So it has to do all three things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can I can think of many many examples, but that's those three things: the, the the quality of truth, the quality of being surprising truth, and the quality of then an inevitability about it that it had to be that way, mm-hmm. uh, are uniform in any great work of art. That to me, that's the way I think of it. There is a. I'm rel- I'm reluctant to bring up my other podcast, more than one lesson, which is uh, filmed at more than one lesson dot com. Yeah, uh, not too reluctant. Yeah, I'm reluctant. I, there was a pause. <laughs> I left a pause there, you know. But I recognize well, dead air. Nobody wants that, so I might as well just say it. Um, yeah, my other podcast, more than one lesson, is another film discussion podcast, but this one from an overtly Christian point of view, um, because I feel like uh, the Christian world tends to be a little bit uh, hostile toward, by a little bit, I mean ex- excessively uh, hostile towards uh, film, uh, art in general and film specifically, um, because they feel like, well, there's nothing for me in this. But I feel like art is... is It's the saddest it's, thing. It's, Doctrine has ruined religion. Religion is so great. <laughs> It's so great. It's yeah. man needs it. It's wonderful. <laughs> Jesus didn't say didn't say worship me. Didn't say he said be like me. And uh, he, uh, I'm getting angry. Me Sorry, too. I'm, I'm going. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving a lecture at the International Christian Film Festival next week, and I need to make sure my tone is correct. <laughs> um, but because uh, <laughs> clear got, those moneylenders from the temple. <laughs> I'll do. I'll do my best. But um, but that's the thing is. Um, like Jesus spoke in parables, like stories. He told stories to get at a truth that he that he was trying to you know communicate. But then also, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about the idea of art being ultimately a search for truth. You know, maybe with a lowercase t or an uppercase t, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the truth might be it could be veering off in this way. It could be something that a a Christian or or an atheist or anybody would never say. Is like, well, I don't believe that. It's like, yeah, but it, underneath you know, these two or three layers underneath, there probably is something, the good art, there is something there that you relate to and that you recognize. And I feel like the best movies are ones that people of all creeds, colors, whatever can see and say like, I see a little, I see myself there and I see uh, a real understanding of the way life is in that film or book or whatever you want to say. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, uh, to put it in a succinct way, the Which question, I did not. I apologize. No, no, no. I'm, I'm the last one to criticize somebody for not being succinct. Believe me. Uh, it, the question must be true, not the answer. Hmm. In art, and again, this is. I'm forgive me for being broad and sounding, you know, I don't know, professorish, professorly, or whatever it's, the word is. Um, but I, I, it's the question that matters. Mm-hmm. And the best art doesn't really give you too much of an answer. Yeah. It asks a good question, and then you, if it's good, I mean, something that's good, particularly a good movie, when I love, oh, sorry, I really love movies, um, if it's good, it insinuates itself somewhere in my consciousness, and I find a day or two later, or a week later, or maybe even more than that, it's still running around in there. It, it got to me in some way, that it's still 
bouncing around. You know, mm-hmm. that's how I know something's good. In addition to enjoying it as an experience when I'm when I'm in the theater or in the, no. watching television. Um, but it's because of the nature of the questions that it asks. Uh, I, and if you can't come up with a good answer to the question, you know certain answers are not the right answer, yeah. but you don't necessarily know what the right answer is. That's a demonstration of the fact that the question was worth asking. You know, which, which actually brings me to, of all movies, I was so floored by Bone Tomahawk. I, when I had heard what it was about, I thought, like, okay, this is just going to be some pulpy Western thing. I already saw Kurt Russell, another pulpy Western. Uh, I'll just throw this in like while I'm working. Mm-hmm. About seven minutes in, it's like, all right, I'm not working now. Uh, work is going to be put on hold, and I'm going to watch Bone Tomahawk, because it feels as though, with the characters that are explored in that film, it feels like the writer-director is, to go to what you're saying, like asking certain questions, like what drives these men what drives this world? You know, we're talking about the old West. We're talking about like settling a wild area, but in doing so, what do we define as wild? Um, and he's just, and he's, he's asking the questions with a great deal of sincerity. Now I don't necessarily think that sincerity is in itself the most important thing, but maybe, maybe the word isn't sincerity. Maybe it's honesty. He actually honestly wants to know what drives these men and in doing so, I think it's the best performance of Kurt Russell's career. I think Richard Jenkins is doing like career best work. And it's just this amazing, it's just, why are you laughing? Well, you've, <laughs> you've complimented two of the actors in the movie. Well, There's it's a just, third one right well, here. No, that's all right. My part is very small. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, very it is small. A, it is a, it's a notable role, but it's, you know, uh, you haven't seen Bone Tomac, right? I have not seen Okay, Bone I was about I'm to make sorry. a joke that I will not because okay. it spoils a horrendous but wonderful part of the film. Um, but yeah, uh, when your involvement with that film, uh, did, they, did they approach you specifically or did, you, did your agent say, hey, I think you'd be good for this? No, uh, Craig Zoller, the guy who wrote and directed it, mm-hmm. uh, is well known to people in the film world because he's had a number of films on the blacklist. I'm sure you know what the blacklist mm, yeah. is. For your listeners who may not know, that's <clears throat> a list that comes out every year of the best unproduced uh, screenplays that are uh, that are uh, offered that year. And often uh, you see the same names. So, excuse me, Craig's name has been on that several times, the guy who wrote and directed that film. Um, And he's actually a rock musician. That's what he does for a living. He's he's uh, quite a successful rock uh, composer and uh, player. But he had a side interest of uh, writing novels and screenplays. So he had this one. Uh, he started it a long time ago, and he sent it around, and it was on the blacklist, and it never he couldn't get the money to produce it. And it's a kind of a strange mashup, you might say. It's a, it's a, in, some, in many respects, it's a traditional Western with a... I, they, people call it a horror uh, you know, genre kind of um, ending. Well, I think that's a little bit reductive to say that, yeah. right? Um, but it's 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 a sort of a horror western mashup. But the, most of the film is structured like a sort of a slow traditional western, yeah. uh, reminiscent of maybe The Searchers or you know slowly developing kind of westerns. But he's a really really good writer, and he's particularly good with character and dialogue. 
uh, and he wanted to he wanted to direct it himself, but he this is his first no. uh, film he ever made, so he was able to put it together. Um, he just uh, wrote me. He, he friended me on Facebook, which is now the way that I get some some of my most interesting uh, projects. And he said, including uh, this podcast, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, he wrote me a letter saying, uh, you know, I thought you were great and a serious man, and I saw in a world, and I think, uh, I think you know, very nice. He said, I've written this movie, uh, and there's a part. It's not a it's not a huge part, but uh, I'd be so thrilled if you'd do it. And he said, and "Here's going to be, you know, here's who's going to be, you know, who's going." To, I was very impressed with the, excuse me, the cast that he assembled, and with the quality of the writing itself. Uh, so I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." So uh, I got, and I had never worked with Kurt Russell before. Hmm. Um, I knew some of the other people in it, um, but uh, I knew Richard Jenkins from years and years ago. Um, but uh, so I, I just did it. Uh, it just showed up, but it showed up because he had seen me in other films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was fun because, you know, you don't get to do Western. I often, especially, uh, you know, don't get to call, call them on to play characters who are not, uh, you know, bad parents or, you know, bothersome Jews or. Well, whatever. you could have, you could have layered that into the character. It's like when he's not a bartender, he's, so you know, neglect, his around. neglecting yeah. his daughter. Yeah. Um, so you talked earlier about the, uh, you know, uh, very experienced directors like the Coens and Woody Allen. What's the difference between that and working with first-time directors like in this or in in Inner World? Well, in fact, in Inner World and uh, in Bone Tomahawk, while those were inexperienced directors, they both happen to have been very good directors. But when you work with really good directors, they don't say too much. Mm-hmm. They say uh, they have this talent to be able to say just the right thing that kind of liberates some uh, whole avenue that you haven't explored maybe, or kind of gets you on the right foot. I remember um, early on in my career, I did a film uh, called Suspect with Cher, directed by a wonderful director, since passed away, a guy called Peter Yates, Mm -hmm. English director. He directed Breaking Away and um, uh, Bullet and a number of very good films. Anyway. Uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. Friends of Eddie Coyle, exactly. So uh, early on in this film, I said, you know, I, I feel a little, I, I'm not sure I quite understand this character. He's, the character was, Cher plays a, a legal aid lawyer in it uh, who is helping a man uh, played by Liam Neeson, Liam Neeson's first big American role, although he has no lines in it. Hmm. Um, Liam Neeson is a homeless Vietnam veteran who's accused of murdering someone but I, I don't want to ruin the film for those who haven't seen it, but in fact, he's not the, the murderer. She has this difficult responsibility of defending this indigent, poor, homeless guy who, in addition to his other problems, is mute, mm-hmm. cannot speak. And she's kind of burned out. She's a legal aid lawyer who's always defending people that uh, can't afford an attorney, so very often they're, they're underprivileged, they're poor, you know, that's, frequently they're guilty. Um, and she's like burned out at the beginning of the movie. So I play this character who is her boss, who's kind of a true believer, who kind of really believes that, you know, this is something we have to do. This is, um, you know, we have to stick up <clears throat> for people who can't afford. It's worth it to do it, even though we, we often are mistreated, we're underpaid. Very often our, our clients are guilty of the crimes that they're accused of. <clears throat> so I said to the director, Peter Yates, I kind of don't have a beat. I don't think I have a good beat on this guy. And he said, well, <clears throat> I just have a feeling that at home, he has many children. Now, that is not, not, not mentioned in the script anywhere. It has nothing to do with, the, it has nothing in a practical sense to do with the character. But I thought about it, and it seemed right to me. 
in the first place, it seemed right because he's tolerant. He's used to being around noise and, you know, what, what it's like to have a house full of children. And then also, maybe he needs to get out of the house. He needs to have a <laughs> career that's so demanding that, he's, that he's, you know, his wife has to, unfortunately, uh, you know, take the brunt of it, like my wife does in real Another life. Another bad father. What's going on yeah. here? So um, somehow him saying that just got me thinking about it in a different way than I had thought about it. And then I began to think, yeah, exactly. I know, you know, I know people like this. I know people that are, that became teachers. You know, they were, they were educated like me. They went to Yale and they wound up becoming teachers and they went to really rough parts of Bed-Stuy in New York where I'm from and, you know, taught in schools where uh, the kids were very likely to uh, have broken homes and come from violent backgrounds and be gang members and all that kind of stuff. And they persisted in these schools. And I just thought, after 15 or 20 years, how can you take that? Don't you just want to... But there are certain people who are built for that kind of environment and that kind of dedication, have that kind of love, both for humanity and for what they do, that all that discouragement, all that rough treatment, they're able to, they're able to persevere. So he's a guy like that. And, but I had to, uh, saying it is one thing, but being able to act it convincingly, somehow him just saying that to me, he has a lot mm-hmm. of children, and I thought, it just got to me in some, in some mm-hmm. way. And really good directors have this ability to uh, say something or other, and you go, yeah, exactly. And, and it's very, it's very um, helpful. So, okay, go ahead. I, I, wanna, I know we, we have to have an eye toward uh, wrapping up at this point. I don't want to necessarily end on this note, but I do want to ask you about uh, Get On Up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because on the one hand, you, we talked about Cy Abelman is a great villain, uh, and your character in Get On Up is not a villain, but you did have to say the N-word at one point. He's, and he's sort of a villain. But it's almost like it's not even particularly malicious. You well, know, that's kind of the villainy of it is that it's so and, good. Yeah, but, and so I guess that's what I wanted to ask you is what's it – What's it like to get into that that headspace of real world sort of evil, like banal evil? Well, um, I actually I actually didn't want him to say that. I wanted him to use another expression, not quite so inflammatory, because I thought that would make once you use that word. It's like pointing to the audience and saying, hey, oh, see, see this guy? You know he's a jerk when he says right. that. You, you know he's a villain. I thought it would be more interesting for him to use a word that was derogatory but not quite as loaded as that word is. And there was also a little more that was that at the time was used, uh, you know, not maybe not as often as that word, but, but you know, fairly often. But I lost that one. <laughs> um, we, we actually did it both ways, but you know they wound up using that 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 uh, version. Um, you know his function within the movie is um, he's sort of comic. He's a sort of a comic villainous character. But uh, I think it's important for the audience to know that James Brown. Those of the people of my age, I mean, I saw James Brown perform, uh, weren't aware of what James Brown had to overcome. Mm-hmm. You know, when James Brown became a success, became popular, the music business was deeply, deeply unfair uh, to, uh, particularly to people of color, 
but you know they they sign contracts where they you know they they get ridiculous amounts of money uh i mean ridiculously low amounts of money and they'd sign their whole catalogs of songs for nothing you know you read about so so the guy that i played was a real historical figure an actual person who owned a record company uh and he wasn't doing anything that was uniquely bad uh to him but that was the way record companies were set up uh, in those days and of course records are a low profit item for, for in those days, most people were buying forty-five records. Mm. A forty-five record in those days uh, costs uh, eighty cents, seventy-nine cents. <laughs> so you're, you're talking about a very small profit, anyway, on a record. Uh, and you know the artist's share of that was very small. At the same time, um, when James Brown many years later had a song said that said, uh, "Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud." I think a lot of white people weren't aware of what a revolution that was. You know, nowadays, I guess that's, I guess that doesn't seem all that, um, that much of a firebrand statement. But at the time, you know, it wasn't say it loud. I'm, I'm black and I'm as good as you, or, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm as black, I'm black and I, and, and I deserve equal pay. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. That was quite, uh, uh, eye opening to say that. So uh, the way that I viewed my my role in that film, and I think the way that um, the, uh, the way it was conceived by the authors, was <clears throat> to kind of show the way things were in for, for typical artists in James Brown's era, where they had no control over anything. You know, the, all that stuff that you see of his, of them breaking up the band, mm-hmm. uh, making James Brown a star, and sort of putting sort of you know uh, setting them against one another, all actually happened. Um, as to your question specifically, what's it like to play the banality of evil? Um, I think that's the, the, the less, you know, in a sense, I didn't want him to be as funny as he was because I thought he should, you should, and, and it shouldn't be, on the one hand, you should be aware of the fact that that's the nature of evil, that it is, it is banal. It is, you know, the, Har- the Hannah Arendt idea. Um, on the other hand, um, you don't want him to be a stock character. Mm-hmm. So he should have some warmth. He should have some some appreciation, you know, at some level. Um, but but he he was an old school record guy who really didn't understand um, music that was not formulaic. After all, records, particularly singles, were produced according to, for the most part, to formulas. Mm-hmm. You know, you have you have a, a hook line that people remember. Um, you have the things were, were produced, produced, uh, like in a factory style and there were, there were formulas that were, that were, uh, used successfully again and again and again. So the fact that this guy shows up, James Brown shows up and with a formula, with a, utterly breaking this formula, you know, confounds my character. Um, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I just have the, uh. Whenever I see that, like like that, or in another Chadwick Boseman movie, when uh, in forty two, when mm-hmm. Alan Tudyk is just going off on on him, I think like I'm glad I'm not an actor because I don't know if I could like put myself. Maybe I have too much white guilt to put myself in a place uh, to 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 say those things. I mean, I, I just wonder if there's any sort of like guilt that hangs with you no, after, no, after I, cut is cold no no about saying anything no because uh, people do all kinds of things and it's the actor's job um, and what makes acting so interesting is how people get to a place where 
not only can they call somebody a discriminatory, you know, insulting name, but people get to a place where they murder people. People mm-hmm. get to places where they do all kinds of stuff, and they don't really think it's so bad. They think they're just surviving. They think they're just, they think they, they were, acting is, as I see it, as I said before, it's like wearing a coat, but it's always you underneath. That's the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. It's you underneath, but you're wearing a coat, and that coat may be um, not only a different way of walking or talking like Cy Abelman or you know, appearing, but also a different orientation towards other people. I mean, there are people who genuinely feel that all this world is a, is a survival test mm-hmm. and that anything you have to do to survive is fine. There are people who you know measure themselves on that standard, right. um, and they're just people. They're they're you know they're not monsters. They're actually just people. Um, so that's what acting is all about. So no, I, I didn't feel any guilt from the point of, of from the point of view of using uh, that word, but I thought it would be more interesting um, if you didn't hang a sign around his neck and say, "Oh, here's a bad guy of the time using that horrible insulting word." Yeah, it's very easy to you. There are certain there are certain words, and actually, there's not that many of them anymore. But like there are, there are very specific words that if you put that in the mouth of a character, it's a very not to imply that the you know the the writer of Get On Up was doing this, but uh, for lack of a better term, it's kind of a shortcut or a shorthand. It's a shorthand that's just like, all right, he used the word. We all know what this guy's about, right? And it's just like, well, but there's. Probably yeah. more to it than that. Yeah, there's always more to it than that. And you, and that, you, you never want to telegraph the audience mm-hmm. as an actor or a writer. Uh, it's okay to tell them something about somebody, um, but if they think that from that little bit that they can then extrapolate to know what the whole character is, you are wise to then uh, surprise them with something else yeah. um, that reveals uh, another side. Because um, if you do just make a character... Uh, one-dimensional he becomes a plot device and then it becomes then you're then you're then you're doing uh, it, 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 it makes the whole process not interesting sorry go on uh <laughs> bef- before we because i know we have to wrap up soon yeah but i wanted to talk because you said plot uh, character as plot device so a while uh, the very first time we had uh, a actor comedian Wayne Fetterman on the show mm-hmm. I asked him about being on Curb Your Enthusiasm because when you're not Larry David and you're not Jeff Garland or any of these other you know recurring characters and you're someone who shows up for one or two episodes mm-hmm. your like your character is defined pretty much by your opposition to Larry and that's basically <laughs> it mm-hmm. and I'm always fascinated to know now yours is a little bit different because he's not because he's sort of initiating, uh, throwing some information out there that was not asked of him. But it seems to me that from an acting standpoint, it would be tremendously difficult to play a character whose only, for lack of a better term, motivation is to oppose the main character. Like, that's all they're meant to do. Um, And I find myself wondering, like, how did you get to a point where you could craft a full character out of that? Well, as an actor, you're, you're ne- you, you never concern yourself with what your function is within the story. Mm-hmm. That's for the writer to worry about. Um, your job is always how to make it real. In other words, what motivates that person to do what he does. Mm-hmm. That's, that's human. That's real. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's interesting in the case of uh, Curb, Your Enthusiasm, Curb Your Enthusiasm I had been a fan of that show and I, we used to watch it my wife and me used to sit in, in Montauk and, uh, on the bed and watch it and really enjoyed it but I didn't realize that that show is entirely improvised I had yeah. no idea and then I got and, and uh, when I got uh, called to do it uh, I went in I, I met them and you get a little piece of paper a tiny little white piece of paper like a Chinese fortune cookie sort of thing <laughs> and it's all it said was you are Larry's psychiatrist and you have billed him some hours uh, for stuff that was not in the office that's all it said really that's it <laughs> that's it totally all so the whole so all the stuff about celebrities and mentioning his name and all that stuff is totally made up now what happened was <clears throat> we went to the set the first day and the first the first scene was set in a, what, what was a baseball card show. Mm-hmm. And they kind of explained what was happening. You know, they have a plot, but there's no dialogue written. No. But, the, you know, they kind of explained the plot. Um, and I had, I had had a therapist at one time uh, who actually uh, used to mention uh, celebrity names to me. Huh. And I always thought that, I thought, I said, I said Jesus, I wish he would, st-. I never said it to him, but I thought, <laughs> that is so, so honkingly wrong. <laughs> so talking about celebrities and all that stuff. Just, t- you know, the worst. And, and I thought that would be, that's a funny thing for, for, for a therapist to do. And then I'm thinking, well, who can I, who can I mention? And I was thinking, it would be funny not to come up with a big star, but somebody who's like a real middleweight, not a great name, but like mid, like who can I, and I was thinking, about, okay, so what's a middle, middling rock group? So, so uh, I was thinking like Three Dog Night, Grand Funk, Grand Funk Railroad. <laughs> and I happened to remember that my friend, I had a friend in college, used to always uh, sort of parody Grand Funk Railroad. He thought it was very funny, make fun of Grand Funk Railroad. <laughs> so who is, the, who, is the, who is the guitarist for uh, Grand Funk Railroad? Is Mark Farner. I, I just is stuck in my head. So and my, my friend used to say, the thing that's great about Mark Farner is he only plays the important notes. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, this is going to be great. So I, I, but what happens... First is, you go through it, and you're improvising, and the first two or three takes is like, uh, well, Larry, uh, it's funny running into you here at the baseball card show, and, uh, uh, you know, you, it's not... Being your therapist as I am. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Uh, it's not, not it, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not all exposition, but, you know, there wasn't too much funny, and then I thought, oh, yeah, I, I remember this thing I thought of, and, you know... They they tell you some people think that in in improvisation preparing something they call it packing a lunch they think it's sort of like <laughs> cheating but I thought ah, I, I disagree you know? <laughs> so I had this thing prepared I thought okay so I'm going to and Larry had no idea so um, I said to him you know uh, I forgot I said you know you remind me of a certain a certain patient of mine I don't want to I don't want to mention his name but. Uh, he happens to be the uh, the uh, the well known rock guitarist from a, from a very 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 quite famous group, uh, Grand Funk Railroad. Well, <laughs> I told you the name of the group. You could just look it up on the CD. Is Mark Farner's name? Anyway, so when I said this, Larry started laughing, and you know I felt like I had struck gold. You know, you make him laugh is a big deal, and he said and he was laughing. He said, "Go on, go on!" Like he didn't want to ruin the take. So, so, you know, we completed that day and then the next day was supposed to be in my office and 
they all like that. So I thought, well, we'll complete this idea where he's, you know, mentioned somebody really famous. So I said, now I'll go for somebody like much bigger than that. So I thought, well, who can I, who's, who's a big director that I could, you know, so I, you know who I came up with. I don't want to ruin it for people that may not have seen it. But, uh, although I, I, since I, since I said that this particular director, he, <laughs> Larry was complaining because, um, he had only talked to me for 10 minutes, but I had billed him for an hour. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I said was, well, you know, when, when people have what I might call the more profound kinds of narcissistic, narcissistic <laughs> character disorders, they can't, it's hard for them to gauge how long they've been talking about their problems or themselves. And he said, are you calling me a narcissist? And, and then I, I thought, well, we'll work on the other thing about the directors. And I knew very well, like, I'm never going to get a call to be in a Star Wars, Star Wars movie after this. <laughs> so I said, uh, you know, I have a, a rather illustrious client. I don't want to mention his name, but he, he did direct Star Wars. <laughs> So, Larry said, everybody knows George Lucas directed Star Wars. I said, not everybody's in show business, Larry. That, that is, that line is so, per, like, that is how the character justifies himself. And this is perfectly fine to say. And it somehow makes Larry, it's meant to like make Larry feel bad. It's like, well, not everybody's like you. Yeah, yeah, sure. exactly. Not everybody's so obsessed with show business as you are. Yeah, yeah it's, well, I, wow, I did not know. That I mean, I knew that it was you know all improvised, but I did not know that you were given that level of freedom. That you literally crafted an entire beat of this character, like yeah, the t- the nature of this character that he's constantly dropping names was well, completely. My you. psychiatrist actually invented it. Oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yes, yes. I didn't invent it. Well, but. that's a, a, a fantastic story and a great uh, positive, uh, uplifting, and hilarious note to wrap things up. You on. sure you don't Thank want to go back you, to the uh, N word? Yeah, I think we can end with the uh, "Not Everybody's in Show Business," uh, which uh, should make the title of the episode. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, truly. Um, listeners at home, as you know, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. That's where you can find all of our movie reviews and, and the other podcasts. Tyler, Tyler's review of The Meddler, which you mentioned uh, earlier, is up this week. You can email us, david at battleshippretension.com, tyler at battleshippretension.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at davypretension. Tyler is on Twitter at tyler.pretension. Uh, you've got another podcast. It's called More Than One Lesson. Yes, you already, perhaps you've heard of it. You it's called More Than One Lesson. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and uh, this week, uh, my uh, co host robert and i talk about the uh original lord of the rings trilogy all right my other podcast is about tv it's called hey watch this with paul and david this week paul and i are talking about the uh premiere of the amc miniseries the night manager and we're talking Mm. about the season four uh premiere of inside amy schumer on comedy central can i say one thing before we say goodbye Oh, i was about to turn turn, throw it to you so it's your turn i'm so thrilled since you bring up television i have a new show uh that's on netflix um, I, I hope everybody uh, enjoys it, tunes into it. It's it a show that I, I won't tell you the whole, the whole uh, history for, for, uh, of it. It's called Lady Dynamite. Uh, and it stars me and Maria Bamford. If you know who Maria Bamford oh, yes. is, brilliant comedic talent who I Oh, adore. and you were both on Benched. Yes, we were on Benched together. That's how we became friends. Uh, and and this is, uh, this is uh, really about Maria's life and recreation of her, of her world and her career. Um, after uh, a very serious um, problem with mental illness that she had to deal with, uh, mm-hmm. about which she's very frank and talks about. Uh, but this is a full-fledged uh, comedy, um, extremely funny, in my view, extremely filthy, but genuinely, genuinely amusing. Uh, uh, and it, it starts May 20th. All 12 episodes will be dropped at once on Netflix. I only recently heard about it, and I was very excited at the notion of 
Maria Bamford starring in a show and being a creative force behind it, because I can only imagine what that must be like. Uh, in the best possible way, of course. It's a total, total trip. It's so, it's so great. And um, Mitch Hurwitz, who uh, you may be familiar with from Arrested Development, was the producer creator of the show, along with Pam Brady, who was one of the head writers of South Park. So they mm-hmm. originated the show along with Maria. Well, that's definitely uh, something to look forward to. I'm a no huge uh, fan of Maria Bamford. I'm a huge fan of you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, are you on? Uh, you mentioned Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Snapchat. I'm on. I'm on Facebook, <laughs> and I will shortly be on Twitter, although I'm not yet. Okay. All right. All right. So thanks again. Uh, thanks at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. 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 This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 